The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John, the 16th chapter, beginning at the 16th verse. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus here is speaking to his disciples. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come and overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears and our hearing. As we turn to attend to the word of God, Holy Spirit, come. And be at work that what is said today, what is heard today is in accordance with the word of God for the good of God's people and for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for God's glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to ask you a question and see if you uh, agree or maybe disagree, but I, I think it's a question that I'm on safe ground asking, right? There's the old, old saying, never ask a question for which you don't already know the answer, right? But I think I know the answer to this question. Would it, do you believe, would you agree with the statement that most people want happiness and security? I'm not talking about defining happiness and defining security, but whatever or however they may define it, most people, maybe all people, want happiness and security. Agree? Disagree? Agree. Good. I'm so glad that you agree with me this morning. It's fantastic. Right. I mean, most people want this. We want to be happy. We want to be safe. We We want to be happy and secure. Thomas Jefferson and the men who signed the Declaration of Independence with him, they went so far as to call the pursuit of happiness an unalienable right given from the Creator to all men, to all people. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants security. And we go about pursuing these things, happiness and security, in an infinite variety of ways. We work hard, we buy things, we enter into relationships, we leave relationships, we go on vacation. Sometimes, heck, some of us are on permanent vacation. Yeah, there you go. We drink, we eat, we exercise, all in this pursuit of happiness and security. We work really hard to get the things we think will make us happy. 
We work really hard to get the things that we think or to put ourselves into a position of security. And, and then when we attain them, what we so often find is that they can't actually deliver upon the promise. The things that we think will make us happy can't, and the things that we think will make us secure can't. The relationships we think that will offer both can't. C.S. Lewis once wrote, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. And what if Lewis here isn't talking about the trinket or the relationship that we think uh, will provide what we want? What if he's actually talking about the thing itself? And here's what I mean. We all want happiness and security, but what if these things are themselves merely shadows of God's intention for humanity? We want happiness, but what if we were made for more? And what if happiness is just a shadow of the real thing? We want security, but what if we were made for more? And what if security that we think we want is really just a shadow of something more? We want happiness, but what we need is joy. We want security, but what we need is peace. We scamper about, we flit here and flit there, we try to find happiness, we try to create it for ourselves when God has made us for joy that only He can give. We work really hard trying to find security, trying to create it ourselves when God has made us for peace. What we need in this anxious world is not more happiness created by ourselves. What we need in this anxious world is joy given by God. What we need in this angry world is not security that we've created for ourselves. No, what we need in this angry world is peace given from God. Here's the amazing grace of God. The amazing grace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God of the Bible. What we need, God gives. We need joy, God gives joy. We need peace, God gives peace. What we need, God gives to us in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit grows the fruit of joy and peace in the life of a believer. I want to begin this morning by uh, just thinking about what we really mean when we use the word joy. and What do we really mean when we use the word peace? You know, to find a definition of joy, I did what most of us do these days. I Googled it. According to Google, joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. I remember the first time that uh, our dog, Ginger, saw snow. She was about, uh, I don't know, 12 weeks old. We were living in southern Virginia, and this little puppy was so overwhelmed with just this giddy response to snow, just jumping around, throwing snow in the air, just like if she could smile, she was smiling. <laughs> this great pleasure, right? This great pleasure and happiness. Notice that word great. Joy isn't just some pleasure. Joy isn't just some happiness. Joy is great pleasure, exceedingly great when you think of joy, what do you think of? To find the definition of peace, I, I once again went to my trusty resource. I Googled it. And peace, according to Google, is freedom from disturbance. It's tranquility. It's a state or a period in which there is no war or a war has ended. When you think of peace, what do you think of? 
Let's ask the question this morning, how does God define joy? How does God define peace in the scriptures? And let's be honest, right? Scripture's definition of joy and peace, they aren't actually substantially different than Google's, though they have a depth of meaning that Google and our world often miss. What I think is really interesting for us to do this morning is to take a look at where the divinely inspired authors of Scripture use the words like joy or rejoice or peace and see the context where joy is experienced, this exceedingly great pleasure in God. For example, we heard uh, Doug read for us this morning from Psalm 30, that famous verse, that wonderful verse from David's mouth, David's uh, writing, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And I want us to recognize this morning that David utters this statement not because there is a lack of sorrow, but he utters this statement in the midst of sorrow because of the one in whom he trusts. Psalm 30 is a song of praise for the deliverance of God. If you go back and you read through every verse, you'll see that David recounts that he was drawn up. He was surrounded by foes. He cries out. He needs healing. He needs deliverance. And then when David calls out to God, he receives protection. He receives the healing and restoration and strength that he needed. He receives the help that he needs. He receives it from God. God has done work to heal and deliver, and so David can say, my morning has become dancing. Not because he suddenly feels great about what he's going through, but because he has trust in the one who can heal, restore, redeem. In the New Testament, St. Peter writes in his first epistle, uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice that the trials have not yet ended. The trials are still ongoing, and yet Peter simply declares that these believers are to rejoice, to be joyful. And how can Peter say that? Well, leading up to this statement, in this you rejoice, Peter has just laid out this beautiful argument, this statement objectively of what God has done for these believers in Jesus Christ. He's given them new birth as believers. He's given them a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. He's blessed them with an inheritance that will never fade. And so in the midst of suffering, in the midst of these grievous trials that these Christians are enduring, they have joy. Because of a lack of bad things in their life? No, but because God is exceedingly good and he is in the middle, in the mix, in the midst What we see, what we're beginning to see this morning, and what we see in Scripture is that joy is an internal condition that exists because of who God is, what God does, and it exists regardless of the things that are going on around us. Joy is an internal condition of great gladness in God, perhaps even while everything's falling down. An internal condition, regardless of the external circumstances, because of the work of God and dependence upon Him. That's joy. Jesus lived a life of true joy. He knew His life would lead Him to the cross and to death. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 2, he calls Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then he says this, "...who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross." 
Happiness and security are so often in our modern world conditions that are formed by the external circumstances. To be happy, we're dependent upon something happening outside of us or something that I could control or something that someone else can control. We think that a relationship is going to make us happy. Well, we're depending upon another fallen human being. Joy is not like that. In joy, we're dependent upon the infinite creator God who knows us better than we even know ourselves. So whereas happiness and security, these things that we think we want, they are so often internal conditions formed by external circumstances, joy and peace are internal conditions that exist because of the grace of God, regardless of what the external situation might be. David, in deep suffering, my sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus, headed to the cross, your joy will be complete. Peter, in the midst of suffering, Rejoice in this. It could go on. Peace in the New Testament is the word irene, and in the Old Testament, shalom. Both of these words together, they mean more than just the absence of war or conflict. Yes, they do mean that. Peace is and can be the absence of war or conflict, but it also carries the idea of, of wholeness, of health, of Things being the way they are supposed to be or the way they are intended to be by God. In a little video uh, from the Bible Project, peace is described in terms of a restoration. Life is complex with many pieces and parts. And when any one of these complex pieces and parts kind of breaks down or comes out of joint, the well-being of the whole is then damaged. It's out of irene. It's out of peace. To shalom something, then, is to restore it to wholeness, to reconcile, to heal, to fix. Isn't it amazing that in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet looks forward to a time in which a special child will be born who will rule over the cosmos. And there, Isaiah recounts this child will have specific names, job titles. He'll do things. He will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. He will be prince of peace, prince of shalom, of well-being, of wholeness, prince of things being the way they're supposed to be. Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of shalom, of peace, there will be no end. It can be well, or it is well, we can say, because of what God has done in Jesus. We can be made whole, reconciled, and at peace, regardless of the external circumstances, not because we're Pollyanna and pretending it's not happening, but because it is happening, we can know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that He is the root of our joy. What a huge difference joy and peace are from happiness and security for which the world strives. We settle for trinkets when we've been offered a priceless treasure. We humans are made for so much more than just happiness and security because we were made by God for joy and peace. And let's be very clear here. Joy and peace, the joy and peace we're talking about this morning from Scripture only comes from God. We can't wake up in the morning while we're brushing our teeth and combing our hair. We can't wake up and just declare, okay, today I'm joyful. Today I'm peaceful. Joy and peace are things that we must receive. We don't create. 
The Holy Spirit grows the fruit of joy and peace in the life of a believer. And so joy and peace, these two things for which we were made, they come from God. Like the spirit fruit of love, the spirit fruit of joy and peace begin with God. And in some ways, we can actually talk about the good news of Jesus, the gospel, in terms of joy and peace. St. Paul does in Romans chapter 5, where he writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, irene, shalom, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God, this restoration of wholeness of relationship, the absence of enmity between us and God and God and us comes in Jesus, not because we create it, because Jesus gives it. It's received by grace through faith. It's an internal condition that is independent upon external circumstances. And true peace, the peace that Jesus gives between God and man, does not depend on our happiness or our security depends on Christ and Christ alone. Joy is an internal condition of great and exceeding gladness in what God has done. Why else could David be joyful in Psalm 30? Joy is an internal condition of great and exceeding gladness in what God is doing. Why else can Peter call believers to rejoice in the midst of suffering Joy is an internal condition of great exceeding gladness in what God has promised to do. And so there is a future tense reality. Because of that which God has done, peace and joy, these twins, they're received. John Stott commented in a sermon one time that God gives joy and peace not to those who pursue them, but to those who pursue him. And so we receive peace and joy from God just as we receive our salvation from the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. On that night before his crucifixion and death, Jesus spent time with his closest followers, preparing them for his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. John 14, 15, and 16 are something like what we could call a farewell discourse. And there he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And then Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And a little bit later on in that same conversation, Jesus says, You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your heart's will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. Joy and peace, great gladness and wholeness that exists regardless of what's going on around us, these are gifts from the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul calls them fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. When Paul writes this, however, he does not intend for joy and peace, this fruit of the Spirit, to be jarred like a jam and kept to ourselves only brought out to spread a little bit on our crusty toast to enjoy for our own. No, joy and peace are internal conditions that actually are to be expressed externally. It's just like love. Love, a fruit of the Spirit that we are supposed to use and live in and out of. So joy and peace are evidences of our salvation. Joy and peace are signs of the kingdom of God. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul writes that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and 
joy in the Holy Spirit. And so if we as believers in Jesus give witness and testimony, if we live a life of joy and a life of peace, we're actually giving witness and testimony to the evidence of the kingdom of God. The way you live, the way I live, matters as testimony. And Christians have every reason in the world to be the most joyous people in all the world because of the work of the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And yet far too often, we are too much like that eternal schnozberry Lucy from Peanuts. Lucy said to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole world. And Charlie says, I thought you had inner peace. Lucy replies, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. Joy and peace are signs of the kingdom of God. They're signs of our true citizenship. Joy and peace are ingredients in our Christian hope. There's something graciously amazing about this. Believers in Jesus can have real joy and real peace here and now, even in the midst of our suffering. And yet, in the here and now, we can also have joy and peace knowing that greater joy and peace are still yet to come. The experience of present tense joy and peace are merely a shadow of the precur- or a precursor to the future tense joy and peace promised by the Holy Spirit. Now, C.S. Lewis, again, he talks about this fact that we want joy or we have joy, but even our best havings are wantings. We have joy, we want greater joy. Well, God promises greater joy to come. Jesus says, you will see me face to face. Joy and peace are evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Joy and peace are not merely human emotions. Joy and peace are much stronger. They're much more durable than my fickle feelings. We need them to be. If joy and peace is dependent upon the way I feel, well, then most of the time I'm not going to be very joyful. And joy and peace, if it's, if peace, if it's dependent upon the way I feel in this angry and anxious world, well, I'm not going to be very peaceful. But independent of my emotion. God does work through the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in us something that's far greater than what I can gen up, more durable than I can create. How can Peter be joyful as he suffers? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit. How can Jesus know joy as he goes to the cross? Because the Spirit is present. And how can we, in the midst of an anxious and angry world, have joy and peace and then live in joy and peace? Because the Holy Spirit grows the fruit of joy and peace in the life of a believer. And there's some significant implications to this truth. Really significant implications. I've already hinted at some of them. The way we live is an unspoken witness to the reality of Jesus Christ. And if we say one thing with our mouths, but then we live in a completely different way, we are undoing whatever witness or testimony we may have spoken out. Joy and peace are evidence of the kingdom, evidence of the spirit, evidence of our faith, precisely because they come from the one in whom we believe. And so I have to ask the question, right, as an individual, do you see the fruit of joy and peace being grown in your life? I'm not asking you to compare yourself to anyone else. I'm asking you to look in the mirror and ask Do I see peace and and, and joy growing in my life? And if you feel really bold, ask a friend if they see it in you. And if you feel bolder still, ask your spouse or your children. 
Is the Spirit at work growing this fruit, and are you intentionally cooperating with it? Second, as a collection of men and women who believe in Jesus and are thus having the fruit of joy and peace grown by the Holy Spirit, folks, the church should be joyous and peaceful. The Spirit bears fruit within individual believers, but individual believers are never alone, and because of God's work in us, we can have joy with a band of joyful brothers. A church marked by peace has real peace, wholeness, marked by a quickness to forgive and reconciliation in the way Jesus prescribes. A a church that is marked by joy has joyous celebration, even in the midst of tough times. The church of all people should be a people of joy and peace. And then the church of all people should be joy spreaders and peacemakers. This is something we can offer the world in the name of Jesus. This is something that the world desperately needs because it's looking for happiness and security which can never be achieved. Joy and peace can be received. People are looking for happiness and security in the midst of their worry about health care, the economy, the unrelenting chaos in today's political divisive world. Laura Holson recently wrote in the New York Times, Bouncing from moment to moment, from crisis to crisis, happiness and security, they ebb and they flow with every tweet or Facebook post. Yet there is something more, something that our longing reveals. There is joy and there is peace found in the triune God. And to an angry world, to an anxious world, the church, our church, is called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with Jesus, we proclaim the joy and peace that are found in the work and in the promises of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. An enduring great pleasure, an enduring peace or wholeness found in Christ and in Christ alone. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.